0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms, so grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Well, good evening to all of you. Glad to see you all here tonight. Glad to see everybody sitting toward the front of the room, with the exception of my son. This is as far as I'm going. You'll have to drag me Just through. refuses to get close to me. That's parenting right there. That's... <laughs> tonight we are in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is like a play in three acts. So we're going to spend a good deal of the evening in 2 Samuel so that we can understand the background behind this particular psalm. Because the psalm itself is very easy to understand, it's very straightforward, but the more that you understand the history behind it, the more you'll understand what David is getting at here as he pours his heart out before God. Even the psalm itself is broken down into three parts, and each part is distinctively different, even though there are only eight verses. So tonight we're going to be introduced to two more things that we're going to see a lot in the psalms as we continue to go through them. First, at the beginning of Psalm 3, there is a superscription, for lack of a better word. It's like an introduction. And it reads A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Depending on the commentator or historian that you read, they will tell you that that may have been written originally when David wrote the Psalm, that maybe he first said, uh, And this is a Psalm I wrote while I was running from Absalom. More than likely, it was added by the priests and Ezra who were collecting these psalms into a book, and that as they were sorting through them and determining their historicity, that they would add these little notes for clarity so that we would understand how these particular psalms came about. The second thing we're going to see for the first time in the book of Psalms is the word Selah. Some people say Selah. Nobody knows for certain what that word means, and in fact, you can read, again, commentators who will tell you that it's a musical marking, that this psalm was meant to have musical accompaniment, and so that it would be read or sung, not sung with a melody, but recited by a group of people, and that there'd be musical accompaniment, and that the Selah word would mean and now there's a crescendo, or now there's a break in the music, or now there's a break in the actual recitation, and the music takes over. Nobody knows, but what we do know for sure is that it's meant to create a stopping point as you read through the song. It's a point of Emphasis where something takes place. There's either a stopping of the music, or a buildup of music, or a crescendo of music, or maybe it has nothing to do with music at all. The very common explanation of the word is that it means pause for a moment and consider what you just read. I heard one pastor simplify that as, think about that. So that as you're reading through the psalm, you just don't hear it as simplistic poetry. The writer, David, is taking time to say, this was my situation. Now ponder that. Think about that. Because that will actually help you to understand what comes after it. Now the three parts of this psalm are, David is on the run from Absalom. He's out of Jerusalem. And Absalom has taken the throne of Israel from his father David. But then the next portion of the psalm says that even as David was on the run, he learned to trust God. And as we read through 2 Samuel, we're going to see, not the whole book, I'm not going to read through the whole book of 2 Samuel, but as we're recounting the story out of 2 Samuel, you're going to see how David recognizes that it is God in his sovereignty who has brought him to this point and that he's being brought down on purpose by God. It is teaching him something. And then he says, think of that. And then the end of the psalm is David recognizing that in all ways, in all things, any restoration, because he is ultimately restored to his throne... Any restoration, here it is translated as salvation, is a direct result of God, that only God can bring about restoration and salvation. So those are what I referred to as the three acts of the play, and those three acts are actually represented in the story in 2 Samuel. That is the course of the story. David is on the run from his son Absalom, David learns while he's in the wilderness to trust God. David is restored to his throne and comes back glorifying God. And so those three stages are represented in this psalm. So here's some background, and you can be turning to 2 Samuel in the meantime. In 1 Chronicles 3 and in 2 Samuel 3, you'll find lists of the sons of David, David had 19 sons through his various wives, and then several unnamed sons through his concubines. He also had a daughter named Tamar. He may have had more daughters, but they're not named. Tamar is the only one who is named because she plays a very significant role in the drama between David and Absalom. The first three sons that David has, according to 2 Samuel 3, this is what it says. this is verse two and three. It says, "Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel; His second, Kileab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel; The third, Absalom, the son of Ma'akah, daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur." Now, the first recorded event where we're sort of introduced to Absalom and get to know his character is when his brother Amnon forces himself on his sister Tamar. It's a really bad situation. So when Absalom hears about what had happened, Absalom invites Amnon to his house, ostensibly for a party, and then during the festivities in the presence of David's other sons, Absalom has his servants kill Amnon. Okay, so now there's even sexual impropriety going on in the family, and then there's murder going on in the family. And then out of fear of his father, since his father is the king after all, Absalom runs away. He runs to Geshur. And he stays there for three years. And during that time, we read that David longed for Absalom. He wanted to bring him back. He wanted to be restored with his son. And it was Joab who was David's general who ultimately talked Absalom into coming back to Jerusalem. And actually he did it through a bit of chicanery as well. But even then, when he came back, Absalom wasn't permitted to go into his father David's presence He was just simply back in Jerusalem so that David knew where he was, but he had to live in a house of his own and was not allowed to go see the king. So he lived that way out of direct contact with his father for another two years. And finally, by the way of Joab's intercession one more time, the two men finally got back together. And there was some small measure of reconciliation in the family, but that peace between them just didn't last. There were several things that were going on politically in Israel at the time. I mentioned to you that David bore three sons while in Hebron. Hebron was originally the capital of Israel, certainly of Judah, the southern kingdom. And then David moved the capital and set up the temple and set up the king's house in Jerusalem and so that caused a certain amount of bad feelings among the people in Hebron suddenly they had been devalued for lack of a better description of how they were feeling and Absalom started resenting his father's hesitancy to be with him and so Absalom begins to undermine King David's rule Actually, what he does is he stands in the gate, which is the place where the king and the judges would be. And when people would come looking for the king to judge their particular matter, Absalom would meet them there and say, well, you know, if I was king, I'd be judging on your behalf because you've really got a really good case here. So he was buttering people up in order to make himself more popular among the people. But when it came time to raise an army and have supporters, he made a beeline for Hebron because he knew that Hebron was already feeling bad about David's decisions to make them a lesser city. And there he secretly arranged to have himself proclaimed the king. David realizes now that if he goes to war with his son, Jerusalem itself is going to experience a tremendous amount of bloodshed. And so because of David's love for the people of Jerusalem, David steps down. He leaves the throne. He leaves Jerusalem rather than fight with Absalom. So Absalom becomes the de facto king. In fact, Absalom's followers grew so much that David actually began to fear for his life. And that was part of what made him run away from Jerusalem. And while he was gone... He left behind some informers, which is smart on David's part. Zadok the priest, Abiathar, these were priests who worked in the temple, but who were loyal to King David. And then one of King David's advisors, a guy named Hushai, who actually acted as a spy, then every time he knew what Absalom's war plans were, he would send word to David so David could keep running and stay one step ahead. So, Part of the background here, too, a significant part of this background, is that David had, in fact, as king, sinned against God when he took Bathsheba to be his wife. And then you may recall that it was, um, it was Nathan the prophet who gave David the bad news, you are the man, you are the man who, who needs to be judged and God's going to judge you. In fact, in 2 Samuel 12, starting at verse 10, we read, now therefore, this is Nathan talking, the sword shall never leave and never depart from your house, because you despised me, God speaking, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So this is what the Lord says in verse 11, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. When David ran, he left his concubines behind. And one of the things that Absalom did almost immediately on taking Jerusalem is that they set up a tent up on the roof of the king's house, and he went into the concubines that belonged to David which was not only a severe insult to his father, but it was a a direct breaking of the law. Leviticus 18.8 tells us, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, it is the nakedness of your father. And Leviticus 20.11 says, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness, and both of them shall be put to death, and their blood is upon them. So Absalom, in his... Foolish attempt to rebel against his father also took his father's concubines and directly broke the law, which helps explain how it is that Absalom finally died. Because David, in a tremendous act of grace, even when he was sending his armies, commanded them directly, as we're going to read, to be careful with Absalom, not to harm Absalom. And you know how Absalom was overthrown? It wasn't by any human cleverness or political wrangling. He was overthrown by his hair. Mm. True story. Something I never had to worry about. (laughs) But he was actually riding on his mule. His hair got caught up in a low-hanging branch. It yanked him off the horse, and David's army found him hanging by the hair from a tree. So, you know, you don't go breaking God's law and then flaunting it In the city of Jerusalem, you don't take the throne that doesn't belong to you. And then ultimately, David was restored. So deal gently with Absalom is what David actually said. But in spite of that, what we're going to read is that the armies zealous for David were not exactly kind to Absalom. David ends up mourning deeply over his son so much so that it affected the morale of his whole army. His grief was so great that the victory over Absalom just started to seem hollow to him. And when it was time to return to Jerusalem, they ended up returning in in mourning and in shame rather than going back triumphantly the way that the armies expected. You know, we're going to roll into Jerusalem like the conquering heroes. And instead they came back Mourning over the fact that David was so deeply hurt by what had happened to his son. Okay, so let, let's read some of that out of Second Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 15, and that will tell us about David actually on the run. 2 Samuel 15. Now, it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and it happened that when any man had a suit, a lawsuit, and would come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, "'From what city are you?' And then he would say, "'Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel.'" And then Absalom would say to him, "'See, your claims are good and right.'" but no man listens to you on the part of the king. So he's undermining King David and saying, you know, if I was king, you'd be getting some justice because your cause is a good cause. Verse 5, And it happened that when a man came near to prostrate himself before Absalom, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. When people would come and prostrate themselves before him, after all, he's the son of the king, he would bow and kiss them. You could see that he was just flattering people and winning the hearts of the people. Now it came about, says verse 7, now it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur, in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So then he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Hebron's the ancient capital of Israel. David is in that new city, Jerusalem, and has set up the capital there, so now he is setting up an alternative kingship by declaring himself to be king in Hebron. Verse 11, then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited, and they went innocently, and they didn't know anything about this, and Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from the city of Gilo, and while he was offering the sacrifices, the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And then a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to his servants, who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee For otherwise, none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And then the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. And all his servants passed on before him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. And then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner." And also an exile. So return to your own place. You only came here yesterday. And shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return. Go back to your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives and as the Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. I think that's a demonstration of the kind of loyalty that these men had to King David. So therefore, David said to Ittai, go and pass over. So Ittai, the Gittite, passed over with all his men and all his little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, then all the people passed over, and the king also passed over the brook Kidron, And all the people passed toward the way of the wilderness. And now behold, Zadok had also come, and all the Levites with him, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And they set down the Ark of God. And Abiathar came up until all of the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again. And he will show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say this, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, and your son Ma'az. And Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, see, I was going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. And therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem, and they remained there. And David went up on the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. And all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. And now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Now, Ahithophel was one of David's counselors who would know all of David's secrets. He would know the inner workings. And so David comes up with this plan. It happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped that, behold, Hushai, the archite, met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. This is another one of David's counselors. So David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. So now David is sending his own spy into Absalom's court so that he can overthrow the counsel that the new king is going to get. Verse 35, And are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? In other words, you're going to be a conspiracy group to help me out. So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok. And Abiathar the priest. And behold, their two sons are with them Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. The next chapter, let's start reading at verse 15, because this is necessary to understand. In fact, this is kind of introducing the next section of Psalm 3 because this is now David in the wilderness on the run from Absalom and this guy decides to start cursing him and throwing rocks at him, a guy named Shimei. And the people who are loyal to David, David's guards and soldiers, say, well, let's just kill him. How does he get away with that? He's cursing the king. And David defaults to God's sovereignty. And that's what we're going to see in the middle section of the psalm we're about to read. This, by the way, is all introduction. You all know that, right? <laughs> I'm still just introducing the psalm, and bless you. So let's start reading at chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there A man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei. If he's from the house of Saul, then he's recently been deposed from being a man of influence and power. Because Saul has been removed from being the king. And so he naturally dislikes David. He sees David as a usurper of the throne that belongs to his own family and heritage. And he came out cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the people of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left, and thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow, the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. And Abishai, the son of Zuriah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zuriah? If he curses... And if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? So David sees his exit from Jerusalem and even his being shamed in the wilderness as the hand of God, humbling him because of all the things that he was already guilty of. After all, as I said earlier, he was already identified by Nathan as being the man who was responsible for the murder of Uriah the Hittite, and had taken Bathsheba, and therefore God had brought bloodshed into his household. And so David is dealing with the fact that just like he's going to say in a later psalm, my sin is always before me. He's always aware of it, and because of his consciousness of his own sin and rebellion, when Shimei comes and starts cursing him, and people want to kill Shimei, he says, if this is from God, then my only answer is, Okay, yes, sir. We have to be obedient to the fact that God may have said to him, curse David. So then who are we to say, why did you do that? Verse 11, then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite. Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me, Instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on their way. And Shimei went along the hillside parallel with them. And as he went, he cursed. And he threw stones at them. And he threw dust at them. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary. And he stopped and refreshed himself there. Verse 15, then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem. And Ahithophel came with him. And it came about. When Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So he's questioning why he's not with David. And then Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him I will remain. And besides, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in the father's presence? So I will be in your presence. And then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice. What do you say? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Here's Ahithophel's really good advice. "'Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, "'and then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father, "'and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened.' "'So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, "'and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. "'And the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days,' was as if one inquired of the word of God. In other words, whatever he said, Absalom said, yep, you're right, that's good. But then eventually in verse, or in chapter 17, you're going to see that Hushai starts giving opposite advice to what the counselors all have said to Absalom. And so he proves himself to be loyal, and as a consequence, he advances in rank within Absalom's circle of friends. We don't have time to get into all that. I'm still trying to get to the soul, but turn to chapter 18 for a moment, because along the way in chapter 17, you also see that as Hashai is gaining loyalty and friendship with Absalom, he's also constantly warning David so that David can always stay one step ahead of his son's plans. Chapter 18 This is how Absalom is ultimately slain. Then David numbered the people who were with him, and he set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent the people out, one-third of them under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. And the people said, you should not go out for if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that you are ready to help us from the city. And so then The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard that the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. And then the people went out into the battlefield against Israel And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men, for the battle was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast into the oak, so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. So he's left hanging by his hair, and when a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And then Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him right there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man, Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. In other words, you wouldn't have defended me. Then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And the ten young men who carried Joab's armor, gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Absalom blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, and Joab restrained the people, and they took Absalom, and they cast him into a deep pit in the forest, and they erected over him a great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, each one to his tent, And now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley, for he had said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he built a monument to himself. So he named the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this very day. And then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, you are not the man to carry that news this day, but you shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and he ran. And now Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for your going? So there are ultimately a couple of people who go to David to announce to him what they think is the good news that now Absalom is dead. And instead, it causes nothing but grief and anger for the king Verse 24, now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall, and he raised his eyes, and he looked, and behold, a man was running by himself, and the watchman called and told the king, and the king said, if he is by himself, then that's good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer, and then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, behold, another man is running by himself, and this one is also bringing good news, the king said. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, this is a good man and he's coming with good news. And Ahimaaz called and said to the king, all is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And he said, blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against the Lord my king. And the king said, Is all well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. And then the Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said... Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of the Lord my king and all those who rise up against you for evil be as that young man is. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And thus he said as he walked O my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Joab gets there and he actually reproves David and says, this is supposed to be a day of great joy. And here you've made it into this day of mourning. And then David in chapter 19 is restored as king. Turn to Psalm 3. That is the background to Psalm 3. And it won't take us long to get through Psalm 3 now. Psalm 3 verse 1 says, This is as David is fleeing from Absalom, getting ready and departing Jerusalem, going out into the wilderness. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased and many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, the word soul there means of my life, of the very fact that I am living right now. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Think about that. Now this word deliverance there is the exact same word that's later going to be translated as salvation. It, technically means life here on earth. This is not talking about eternal salvation. It's not talking about spiritual salvation. It's being saved from your enemies, being saved to continue on the throne, being restored to the throne. And so David says, my enemies who are around about me are are not thinking I'm going to live. And they're saying this against me, that there's no restoration for him In God, because after all, he's the king that God placed on the throne, and now he's on the run. And so his critics are saying, well, if you're on the run and you're off your throne, then even God can't help you. Obviously, Absalom is the new king, and there is no hope for your soul. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Think about that. But you, O Lord, art a shield about me. Now that you know that David is in fear for his life, and David is encompassed by many enemies, people who expect him to be dead, now you can see why his faith in God is demonstrated by the fact that he says, God is my shield. God's my protector. My enemies can't get to me as long as God is determined to preserve me. Which is why, when we read in 2 Samuel, King David, as he was leaving, said, if this is what God wants for me, then there's no way to change that. Maybe I'll be restored, maybe he'll bring me back, but whatever God is determined to do with me, that's what he's going to do, and my only response can be, this is what God wills to do. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, My glory, and you are the one who lifts my head. So the only thing I'm going to glory in is not that I'm king, not in my riches, not in the multitude of my wives or horses, not all my servants. In the end, my glory is you, Lord, and you are the one who lifts my head. In other words, he's walking around downcast. We read about it when he was going to the Mount of Olives. He was just wearing a robe and no shoes. He was humbled and downcast, and he said, it's not me that's going to lift my head, it's not my arrogance, my pride, the fact that I'm the king, the only one who's going to lift my head in the midst of this kind of turmoil has to be God. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, and my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, think about that. So again, David wants you to pause for a moment and think about it. First, everybody was against him. First, people were saying, well, even your God can't help you. And he said, think about that. But then he starts declaring faithfully the value of God and that God is a shield and the only thing he glories in and that it's God who restores him and lifts his head And that as he cries out to God, God answers from his holy mountain. The holy mountain is Jerusalem, and the answers that he got back from Jerusalem restored him back to the throne, and he wants you to think about that. Think about the fact that everyone was against me. Think about the fact that I was completely downcast. Think about the fact that I was off the throne and my own son was out to kill me. But then think about the fact that God restored me proving himself to be my shield, proving himself to be the only one who deserves glory, proving himself to be the answer, the salvation that David came looking for when he cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy mountain. Think about that. And then the third act of our play. I lay down and slept. It's a remarkable thing to say. As he's running for his life, as he's surrounded by enemies, he has peace knowing that God is his shield and is going to take care of him and that he can lay down and sleep. And then I awoke because the Lord sustains me. Okay, quick question. How many of you woke up this morning? Most of you? I'm still a little drowsy. But if you woke up this morning, according to this psalm, It was God who let you sleep and it was God who got you up. If you are alive today, the same way that David said, I laid down to sleep and I woke up and I was not killed in my sleep. I was safe because the Lord sustains me. And then he says, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me, round about me. David goes from... Look at what my enemies are doing to me. I'm on the run. I cry out to God, help me, save me, restore me. And then he comes to faith. The more he thinks about God, the more he recognizes that God is his shield and protector and sustainer. And then he can say, I don't care how many people come after me. If God is on my side, sound familiar? You can see why Paul would say, if God be for us, who can be against us? David came to that. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Again, that's not spiritual salvation he's talking about here. Restore me. Take me back to Jerusalem. Put me on my throne again. Show the mockers. Who said, even God can't help this guy. Show them that it was God who restored me and put me back on the throne. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Make their mockery nothing. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. What did we read? We read that there were 20,000 people of his enemies killed by the armies of David. So David says... That it was God who did that, and God has smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. There's a very descriptive phrase, Mm. shattered the teeth, destroyed them completely, of all my enemies, all the wicked. And then finally he concludes, very much like Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. And I told you before, that's that word for restoration. That's that word for being sustained again. So David starts this psalm with I'm on the run. Everybody's mocking me. They're mocking God because God put me on the throne. I cried out to God. God gave me the comfort that I could go to sleep and wake up and I was okay. He sustains me. He is my shield. He is my glory. He's the one that lifts my head when I'm feeling downcast. And then he conquered my enemies for me in order to put me back on my throne. And he did it all. Therefore, David could conclude this redemption, this salvation, this restoration is all of God. I didn't do it. God did it. And blessings, God's blessings, will be upon your people. So David described two different groups of people. He described those who were rebelling against him and therefore rebelling against God. And then he described the people of the Lord who were loyal to David. And God poured out blessings to those people, made David king again, and for the third time... In this three-act play, David says, think about that. And you really ought to. You really ought to stop and think about it. Think about what David went through. Think about running from Absalom. Think about running for his life. Think about how he cried out to God. And think about how God restored him. And David said, think about that.